You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Well, good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy on 3RRR, your weekly dose of all things medical and psychological. Now, just to let you know, I'm working with the assumption this morning that you're all feeling a little bit seedy. And there are a range of reasons for this. Uh, Firstly, I hear that there was some kind of sports game on yesterday. (laughs) Something happened and people had a late night. Uh, Also, the clocks went forward an hour, which if you have young children is the most confusing thing ever. I don't know what to do in terms of schedules today. So I'm working on the assumption you're all a bit seedy. The good news is that... All you have to do in the next hour is sip on that coffee and let us entertain you because we have got a packed show. Firstly, we have got a special guest in the studio this morning, Dr Louise Cooper, who is a counselling psychologist and expert in emotion-focused therapy, which she's going to tell us all about today. She also works at Queer Space Counselling Team at Drummond Street Services in Carlton, which is very relevant at the moment with the same-sex marriage debate going on. And she has a previous life in media and also... (laughs) Just a little background music. Don't know if you heard that. Um, She also has a previous life in media and the theatre. So we are very excited to have her joining us for the full hour today, um, the segment not to be missed. We are also joined by a couple of our trusty regulars. Firstly, Lolly Doc, who's going to be telling us all about the perils of summer, heat exhaustion and all the other things that can go wrong with the warmer weather, just in case you're starting to get too excited. And we've also got Dr Malice in the studio here to tell us all about the conference that he's just been to, and I suspect a bit about how he spent the day yesterday. Uh, This is all happening in Miss Medic's absence. She's currently travelling around California. Tough life, huh? So let's get on with the show. So we've got lots of time for all this wonderful stuff. Doctor, doctor, give me the news I got. Good morning, Lolly Doc. Welcome back from your uh, holiday. Morning. I'm feeling, I'm not seedy at all. Aren't I'm, you? No, I feel great. Is that a first? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the words, what, what, what were your first words when you walked in when I said, oh, you know, um, our panellist uh, our Kent is uh, very happy because Richmond won and you don't, said... Don't share this. No, I'm going to say, and you said... Did they win? And is Richmond the same as the Tigers? I think they were the words, weren't they? Thanks for sharing that. That's right. And are they red? Yeah, and are they red? I think red, Thanks, yeah. Thanks, Louise. Getting straight into it. Yeah. <laughs> Dr Mellis, good morning. I, I thought there was such a thing as confidentiality, but obviously the green room and the... She's not my patient. No, that's true. <laughs> oh, how what a brilliant feeling to be exhausted in a good way, isn't it? I mean, yes, there was a a game. It was called the Grand Final. It's an internationally (laughs) renowned event. Uh, Something like 100,000 people are actually there. And for the first time in over 35 years, 
uh, a team called Richmond, yes, it's one of the suburbs, but also as a football team, actually won the Premiership. Now, I'm not even a, a Richmond uh, fan, although you, you have to be honorary uh, on this occasion. It's just the human spirit soaring high from last year's 13th to the grand premieres. I mean, you just got to love this sport, really. I do love an underdog story, actually. So if anything's going to hook me, that's it, I think. Well, if you like an underdog, this is an under-tiger. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Very smooth. And Dr Louise Cooper, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's lovely to be here amongst this esteemed company. <laughs> <laughs> and honoured. I hear that as I was trying frantically to get you on the phone yesterday, I now know it was also your birthday yesterday. So I'm very oh, sorry about birthday. that. And happy, happy birthday. birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Another reason to be seated this morning. Another celebration. I love it. All right, guys, let's get straight into it. Anyone been scouring the news this week? Any stories for us? I've got uh, some news about dementia, and I found this story. um, (laughs) Such happy stories today. (laughs) Wow. Okay. this is, this is a, a recently published trial and uh, smell is one of those amazing um, senses that I think we, we undervalue and there's a little bit of evidence that smell is one of the first um, senses to go uh, when uh, as an early sign of dementia. And so what this study did was it looked at um, 3,000 uh, men and women and tried to predict whether an early loss of smell could predict onset of dementia in, in the future. So for those people that don't know, dementia is a, a, a catch catchphrase that encompasses a whole lot of illnesses. It includes Alzheimer's dementia, which which we're most familiar with. It's the most common sort of dementia. But dementia encapul- encapsulates illnesses where you lose your core mental functions and memory is one of those, but also your senses can be uh, part of that as well. Um, and there's a whole lot of different types types of dementias, Parkinson's dementia, Lewy body dementia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the, the sense of smells, I think the sense of smells is an amazing thing because the olfactory nerve, which is um, one of your cranial nerves, is the only nerve that um, actually has direct contact with the outside world your brain. I think that's amazing. This is one of, this is the cranial nerve. And so, which makes sense because you have to actually get contact with those smells mm. to translate into a, uh, you know, into a um, neurological, um, what, what's the word I want? Signal. Okay. Signal. Thank you very much. That is the word I want. Um, so, anyway, so what they did was they exposed people to five smells. Can you guess what those smells were? Just out of interest. I bet you can't. Strong. Coffee? No, no. Although co- coffee would be a nice smell to have. So perfume, something yeah, pe- floral, peppermint, fish, orange, rose, and leather. And in fact, they they go from the easiest um, smells to the hardest to pick. So leather is actually quite hard to pick as a smell. It's quite a subtle smell. And rose is hard. And rose apparently is hard too, um, particularly if you've got dementia. So, really interesting. Anyway, so what they discovered was people who could only pick one or none of those five smells were more likely to, were twice as likely to have dementia five years on. And so, what they're looking at is that as a test for, um, for early prediction. Our listeners are grabbing oranges and, you know, leather shoes as you speak, I imagine. And peppermint and, and pepper- fish. Because <laughs> there's nothing like the smell of fish at 10, 15 on a Sunday morning. Wow. <clears throat> So we often talk about the way that smell triggers memories. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one of the 
strongest triggers sometimes that you can smell something and suddenly, you know, be flooded with an image from your childhood. Does that help us understand the link between sense of smell and dementia at all? Um, maybe from an evolutionary point of view, perhaps. So so your sense of smell um, in, it, in its easiest kind of way to understand is, is a hazard predictor. So you... Um, you use smell to link to memories that are dangerous. So, um, you know, for example, the smell of a predator, for example, may trigger a, a response. And that, that's where smell is thought to come from. So we know, for example, with dementia, that um, your ability to predict danger and to predict um, environmental hazards diminishes slightly. So maybe there's a, a, a loose link there anyway. Mm. It's a very personal story also because that was my late father's first symptom of his Alzheimer's, that he lost his sense of smell. And we thought, oh, just after flu or something, which is very common actually, so people who are listening should not be concerned that every loss of smell is this signal because there are many other conditions, sinuses and so on, that can also lose smell. But that and the alteration in taste of food because it's surprising how much food is actually coupled with the aroma. And so the taste of food sometimes is the first indication not of taste change but actually of the loss of the sense of smell. The olfactory nerve has stem cells in it. It's one of the Mm. few parts of the brain that has quite a lot of stem cells and it's thought that if your olfactory nerve doesn't work it means that your stem cell function doesn't work and therefore your ability to repair your brain is impaired as well and that might be a link too. And Lolly Doc, a quick burst please, what is a stem cell? My goodness. So a stem cell <laughs> is the the progenitor cell or the precursor cell oh, of all cells yes. in the body um, and has the ability to transform itself mm. under, under direction of hormones and neural in- inputs to become any cell of the body, skin. Mm. So it's mucosa, really a, a very anything. profound uh, system that goes amok. Yeah, and we probably don't know much mm. about it. Yeah. Fascinating. Dr. Malice, you've been away for a while. So before we get into our bigger segments for this morning, I thought you could tell us a bit about where you were and why you are so sparked by uh, by what it was. Well, some people say I'm away most of the time. But <laughs> <laughs> let's say this was a geographical absence. And I had the privilege and uh, honour, in a way, to attend a conference like no other conference in all my professional life. And for the good reasons, uh, first, it was a place I'd never been to, which is Uluru, at the very centre of Australia. And secondly, the amazing people, the amazing culture and the amazing topic, really. The theme of the conference was, appropriately enough, heart of the matter, being in the centre of Australia. But then the subtitle of the themes, Deep Listening, Dreaming and Joining the Dance. Now, this was hosted by the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. We have a faculty called Faculty of Psychotherapy. So it'll segue very nicely with psychological issues. Thank you. But this had a different dimension to any other psychological or psychiatric conference I'd ever been to. For the simple reason, you go with an expectation to a conference that you're going to hear speakers who are sort of experts in their field and you'll exchange ideas and you'll encounter colleagues and friends and you'll socialise and see the sights. 
All of that is true. However, this was an encounter with a totally different universe. This was actually the meeting of two worlds, two cultures, two histories, more than two languages, given English is the dominant Australian language, but in fact there are over 200 and many more extinct Aboriginal languages. And the experience of actually hearing leaders from the Aboriginal community in the mental health field was absolutely transforming. I mean, I don't use that word lightly because then I looked into what does transform mean? And it really is formed. We're all formed in a certain way by our schooling, education and so on. But to transform is to go into another zone. So within 72 hours, three days of this conference, to enter at one end and then be transformed literally hour by hour and come out the other end in a way that you think, wow, my universe has just expanded. It's Now, to give a little bit of substance to this, what, what is it that can actually do this? Well, two, two speakers, one who will in fact invite it and she's very kindly agreed for our final finale for November's uh, session in, I think, 26th of November. 20-something of November, yeah. yeah she's going to come on as a guest. Uh, Pamela Nathan, who's the director of an organisation called CASSIE. Now, the acronyms, we were flooded with them, but just hear what this is. It's the creation of a safe, C-A-S, safe and secure, S-S-E, environment, CASI. I mean, even the title begs interrogation. What do you mean? What do you have to create a safe and secure environment for? Well, I only knew Aboriginal history from my school days and obviously the things that have happened in the news since, but no formal studies. And my level of ignorance I'm ashamed of. And so the safe and secure environment is the needed space for the Aboriginal communities. We were in Uluru at the centre, but it equally applies to the Northern Territory, it equally applies to the Kimberley in Western Australia, and equally applies not only to the outback regions, but Western Sydney, which is an urbanised. So the rural-urban distinction is also important in seeing what's safe and secure for the different cultures. Now, she will obviously in November explain what her main thrust of work is, but there was a young psychiatrist, psychotherapist, Jessica, who spoke, and she was ever so endearing, saying, look, I've had problems with this attachment theory that I had to learn as part of my psychology. And of course, attachment theory is one of the central pillars of the last 30 years. And she said, the difficulty is when I was asked to have a family meeting with an Aboriginal person, and I thought, okay, I know what they mean. You know, you're a mother, father, maybe a grandparent, like the nuclear family. But I had to explain that in our culture, when a baby's born, a baby's suckled maybe with six or seven women, and they become mothers and aunties. In the same way, the discipline is provided by not just the biological father, but five, six, seven others who become uncles, and then there are the cousins that they're born into. And so to have a family meeting really requires quite a large room. <laughs> not only that, the 
family may be dispersed over hundreds of miles and they don't have transport to come for an appointment. So the whole construct within the Aboriginal culture of the theories that we have in our Western psychotherapy and psychology has to be rethought. And of course, there's good studies for this. But I thought, what a wake-up call of how we make basic assumptions about our culture that so-called dominant is the only way to think. And this is what was so transforming, that hearing it from the actual people, it's something that's opened up a whole new chapter in all our lives, 200 registrants. I can't wait to hear more. Thank you for whetting our appetite. And on our November show, Pamela's going to be joining us and we'll hear about all of that conference and and particularly Cassie in more detail. Thank you. So, Dr Louise Cooper, let me tell you a little bit about her first. Uh, She's a counselling psychologist and she works in private practice specialising in emotion-focused therapy, which is the main reason that we've got her on today because I would like to learn lots more about it. However, she's also a member of the Queer Space Counselling Team at Drummond Street Services in Carlton, which obviously at the moment um, has been overloaded with work given the same-sex marriage debate. So we're going to pick her brain about that as well. And as I mentioned in the introduction, in a previous life, Louise worked in both theatre and the media, which... She actually believes influences her current work as a psychologist as well, which is another thing that I want to chat to her about. So uh, we're going to be pushed for time. (laughs) Uh, Louise, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Rony. So emotion-focused therapy or EFT, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about it and start by telling us how you came to be interested and even know about it because it's not something that all psychologists use. Um, I actually, during my training, I bumped into Dr. Melissa Hart, who is the um, the only person actually in Victoria who trains people in emotion-focused therapy. Um, Melissa is a very interesting person, um, full of energy, and I would watch her working with people from, you know, she would come in and out of her counselling room. I was based at the same, same, same centre as she was. And she was just inspired by every single person that she worked with. And that kind of inspired me or certainly, you know, I I wanted to know what what she was doing or how it was when a lot of people would be seeing client after client and getting more and more tired by the end of the day. And she just used to become energised. So that was kind of what sparked my interest. And also I'd found in my training that there was very little talk about emotions. It was all about what's going on in the mind, about our cognitions, and it seemed like there was a massive piece missing um, and that the body that we're looking, you know, neck up, whereas there's an awful lot that happens neck down that we that, that can't be explained, you know, from a physiological perspective, from a medical perspective necessarily. Um, and the whole world of feelings, I guess... I felt was really ignored in my training. So once I'd kind of got my rubber stamp, I went off and found Melissa Hart and (laughs) did some training with her. Mm. And now I find myself working with her doing that training and helping train other people. So um, the first thing that we did in that training was to put some, some music was put on 
and we were asked to listen to our bodies and to get some sense of what was going on in our bodies and to um, create a visual for whatever that was in an effort to to stay with what was going on in our bodies because a lot of pain, a lot of difficult emotions, difficult feelings that we have, we spend most of our time trying to get away from them. We go into our head or we, you know, we go running so we can't feel our bodies or we create another sensation in our body, which means we can't actually feel what's going on. And there is a stack of information in our bodies um, telling us what we need, what our needs are and, and dictating really what we do. So... I'm sure I'm going to describe this much less articulately than you could, but... I think, you know, what you're getting at is this sense of, you know, we experience the world sort of in, in, in two ways. One is our intellectual brain and how we talk and make sense verbally of what's going on. And the other is in this physical, emotional, bodily felt sense. And in my experience as a psychologist and also in my personal life, it's much more common for people, as you say, to spend their life, you know, in this in their heads on this intellectual verbal level. And I think even when people go to see a psychologist, they assume that's what it's going to be. You know, it's talk therapy. It's all about making sense at an intellectual level of what's going on. And as you say, it can be a bit of a revelation and quite confronting, I think, for many people to be asked to sort of shut that off in a way and just tap into what they're feeling. That's right. You, when, when you start talking, I mean, we can talk about emotions. We can say, I'm feeling this or I'm feeling that. But but that's not necessarily feeling it. That That's often an intellectual um, interpretation of what's going on. So in emotion-focused therapy, what we do is we allow people to have the space to feel to tap into their emotions and kind of use that as a starting point and um by allowing people to 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 do that there is space for those emotions to to peak to change and we use that that experience that people have in the session to Transform if you want the outcome. So, um, emotion focused therapy was conceived by Leslie Greenberg, uh, Laura Rice, and Robert Elliott, who um, Laura Rice is no longer with us, but the other two have devoted their life really to promoting this um, Les Greenberg and, and Robert Elliott. Les Greenberg, if you want, is the the guru and he has um he was an engineer before he turned to psychology so what he did was track what was happening in a in a counseling room and actually look at what was going on from a from a um uh, a bodily sense as well as what people were saying and create a whole series of tasks that corresponded to what was observed in the in the client yeah, were you about to? Oh, I was Louise. Sorry, yeah, well, so you? I was. I know. I, I, <laughs> I was like moved. I was just jumping off my chair. Um, can you can you maybe can we use an emotion perhaps just to explore, give an example of what might happen in a session? So, for example, anger is a very common emotion, and and often um, underneath all that anger, as you've described earlier, pain, um, bad experiences, um, sadness, all those sorts of things. If I'm an angry 
person coming into a session, how would you, what sort of techniques would you use to, to as you say, make that peak and change in that session? Okay, so, um, anger comes in quite often. Um, and, uh, okay, if, if, if you came in to, to, to me and said I'm really angry, often around, often um, named as jealousy, um, in relationship where people are angry and they have been often sent along by their partner because the anger is interfering in their relationship. That's what I see most often. So um, the first thing is, and it was mentioned in regard to this this uh, conference that Dr Malice um, was talking about, is creating safety for that person to experience that emotion. So that's the first thing and the most important thing, to create safety. Also, to, part of that is creating the therapeutic relationship so that they are feeling safe with me or whoever the therapist is. So what we do is uh, um, create that safety by grounding a person, making sure that they're in contact with the room, and then ask them um, what is, the, what is the, the piece that they're wanting to change. So working with whatever is in front of mind for them at that moment because you need to work with a live emotion. The emotion needs to be there. There's no point talking about something that happened two weeks ago because it's not live for them. So as that person is talking about whatever the event is, tapping into when they start talking about feeling ang- anger, we would act, would would allow that to increase, sort of amplify that for them, and ask them about their phys- the physical sensation that they are having with that. And as we do that, asking them to, to to focus on that, what happens is that the emotion, if they allow it, will often change, but they will resist it. So anxiety will often rise, which is what happens for us generally. If we feel an emotion we don't like, we try and sort of knock it on the head and, and, and that's anxiety's role, largely. So there is often this physical struggle. You see people... I've, I've got a picture in my head, actually, of, of a guy that I worked with once who had this... He was a big guy. He was a footballer, actually, and he was struggling with this. He could feel this emotion coming up and didn't know what to do with it. As it rose, he started talking about... He went back in his memory to really the origins of, of, of this feeling, where it had come from. started talking about a scenario when he was a kid and as he did that, he started crying. So the anger, you know, we were able to get underneath that anger to to the sadness which was was underneath there and stay with it St- allow him to feel that um and and say things that encourage him but keep him safe in doing that um that particular person after that said to me that was the weirdest experience i've ever had in my life because he wasn't being asked to interpret it intellectually he was being allowed to to feel it and then give some meaning to it and talked about how how he had been abandoned as a kid or felt abandoned and this was the source of his sadness but as we know children are often particularly boys often not allowed to express that so by doing that we were we were able to allow him to express it and that in turn reduced his anger 
because the anger was covering up the sadness. That makes a lot of sense to me, really. I mean, I think that when I th- persistent anger or persistent emotion, which which is untransformed, using your word from earlier, Malice, um, it sounds very dysfunctional. And so being able to transform it or change it um, opens up doors for other exploration to how you're feeling. I think yeah, that's fantastic. It, it does transform. Mm. You're on radiotherapy on 3RRR and we're talking with Dr Louise Cooper about emotion-focused therapy. Louise, you mentioned in the beginning that one of the things that got you into EFT was noticing other therapists using it, Melissa Hart, and how energised she seemed even at the end of a long day with clients. So I think from the therapist's perspective, we're already getting a sense of how you know engaging and... Um, energizing it can be from a client perspective though the the case scenario you just talked about you know this this man sort of saying wow that was the weirdest thing that i've ever experienced what what are the client reactions to it do people find it confronting do people ever draw a blank when you ask them to describe what's going on in their body do they ever say you know i don't know i can't feel anything is it is it difficult yeah often people say i can't feel anything and often they're there because they're aware that they can't feel anything so the the process of uh try and get people to to visualize or to tap in you know they'll they might say oh i'm i'm feeling i'm feeling angry well how do you know how do you know I'm fe- how do you know you're feeling angry what is that and and gradually encourage people to 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 go to go to their body but a lot of people come because they've done a lot of they've done a lot of therapy they've had a lot of you know done their sessions <laughs> and they know they'll say you know I know this and I know that but still I'm behaving in this particular way and not being you know smoking is an example you know lots of people are smoking and desperately want to stop smoking and they know why they want to stop smoking but they still smoke you know what is that to do with because it's it's the emotions that are driving that it's nothing to do with what's going on in your head hmm. um so people come in wanting wanting it and and therefore they will throw themselves into it but still at the end go that was weird that was really weird hmm. if if i'm exhausted by it i've been working too hard because it's the client that is working really hard they are exhausted and they are going wow what was that what mm. was that mm. and of course for, for me as a therapist it is the best thing to know that they've had an experience you know they're sitting in the chair they have an experience often afterwards um when you work from emotions you you kind of trigger a different connection and you know, there's different stuff going on in in the in the body and that sort of precipitates different stuff going on in the mind so often people have very strange you know memories popping up in their heads afterwards mm. um just because they've done things in a different way from how we normally do it we are trained from the moment we're born really right through school to just use our brains rather than rather than listen to our bodies mm. dr malice this is absolutely fascinating and i'd just like to explore given that you emphasise the body so much, and there's a very famous phrase by a a researcher and uh, a doyen in his own right, van der Kolk, about the body keeps the score. Now, that, he refers that more, more than to emotion, to trauma. And so when you say in the here and now it starts with anger or smoking or a behaviour, 
But it sounds like you are opening up doors from the past. Yeah. Uh, now, how do you start to think about the beyond the emotion when they say, you know, I was abandoned or I was treated in a very painful way, which has sort of sounds like they were traumatised. How do you deal with that opening up? Whether you're talking about big T or little t, I mean... Well, perhaps could you define what is a big T and what is a little t for our listeners? Well, I think a big T, we tend to think of something, uh, something, some form of abuse, some kind Mm of uh, harm to our body, whether it's physical, emotional, but something really big that that everyone would recognize as a big t trauma yeah Yeah. that that doesn't happen to most people in my experience um i work with someone who uh had in primary school a, a another child break his pencil steal his pencil and break his pencil and that had for him in that moment as a little kid been very traumatic Mm. now if you say that to anyone who has had what we would call big trauma they go get over it Mm. and and that person had tried to get had no memory of this really at all as as being significant but as a little kid when that happened he wasn't looked after in that moment and therefore that moment sort of dictated how he dealt with anger in this case being cross that is to happen but not being able to express it and there was no one that explained to him what was going on or you know stood up for him in that moment so it was a tiny little thing but that's what i mean by a a little t so would this be in a way transforming the younger him child big t and through your emotion focus therapy and putting the context and the setting and not saying get over it, but respecting the experience as really big for him, a big T, by that you transformed it perhaps into a little T and a non-T. And a non-T. I mean, mm. that's the idea. Yes. If, you can, if you can allow someone to express the emotion, the appropriate, the adaptive emotion um, of 